Hi everyone, my name is PK and here I have Reedam Saeed who I'm very grateful because in this episode we're going to talk about something really cool like the worst case scenario of the property market. Everyone wants to know how much will interest rates rise, how much will house prices fall. Reedam is like, you know, he's a former economist at the treasury. He's a property developer. He's also a mortgage broker. I came across him in property chat and also on LinkedIn. I thought he produces some awesome content, especially data-driven content, not from copy-pasting it from other people, but his own analysis because he was an economist or maybe is still an economist. So what is the worst case scenario in the property market? How much pain are we still in for? What are the different likelihoods of what's going to happen specifically in Sydney and Melbourne and other places as well? That's the agenda for today. Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name is PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research, spending weekends at inspection or catching flights, or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyer's agents every single time. So if you're confused, lack confidence, and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you. Reedan, thank you so much for, for making it, and I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, PK. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I love your work. I've uh, listened to a lot of your content of late. Um, you know, I've got a newborn, and I've been up at night watching uh, podcasts and YouTube videos, and your face has been familiar, getting me through those nights. So, you know, I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate being here. Cheers. Now, right back at you, my friend. Um, and so I'm actually really excited to talk about this because some of this is like above my pay grade because I'm not a mortgage broker. So you're the expert here. We'll talk about borrowing capacity and how that impacts. Like people just automatically think population and interest rates. That's what drives, you know, housing markets, right? It's much more nuanced than that. So that's what we'll go through. And let's get into the four to five chart um, sort of deductive story or the narrative that you want to to share and, and we can kind of take it there. So what's this first chart telling us? Yeah, sure. So what we did was we had a hypothesis that uh, borrowing capacities are the key determinant of house prices in Sydney. So over the past five years, we've seen that hold true. Um, so in 2017, uh, this was where I started the analysis, um, peak point in capacity, um, there was about a 15% drop in borrowing capacities um, at that time from 2017 to 2018 that was uh, driven by regulatory change. So ASIC came in um, and they changed the way banks assess living expenses at the time um, that led to about a 15% decline in borrowing power. Um, this one is a little bit hard to actually measure out perfectly. Um, so I had to go back through previous lender calculators and, and make some judgment calls about um, risk positions that banks took at the time. Um, banks effectively treated living expenses a bit harsher and that reduced people's borrowing capacity and it was about a 15% fall in borrowing, borrowing power. You had um, Sydney house prices fall by roughly the same amount. Um, and then correspondingly, um, in 2019, you had a huge change. This was in May 2019. Um, I did a podcast at the time and just said the word boom. Um, and, you know, it was a bit of a wild time to say that. But um, what happened was the RBA came up with two rate cuts. ScoMo won an election that um, he was just not predicted to win. It came out of the blue. And uh, APRA at the time um, made a big, big change to borrowing power. Uh, calculators, they reduce the assessment rate that they uh, that banks need to apply when they're assessing your capacity. Um, and it led to a huge change in borrowing capacity. It led to about a 35% change instantly within a month. Um, and 
pan that out over a year or two, it led to about a 45% change in borrowing capacities. Um, and uh, surprise, surprise, um, house prices uh, rose in Sydney by a little bit more than that borrowing capacity amount. Um, that's because the price of credit was so cheap. People wanted to take on that borrowing capacity and you know they may have had some equity and put some more money in. Um, so the last five years, we've had correlation between borrowing capacity and house prices in Sydney. Um, that that was the starting point to uh, this analysis. Right, right. And it's really interesting because I remember doing videos back in like start of 2020, end of 19, and I was sharing some suburbs that are worth, were worth buying in Sydney in the affordable price bracket, like under 700, under 800. Of course, it's no longer possible, but back then it was. And I was, you know, like people were like, oh, but Sydney's just collapsed like 15, 20% over the last couple of years. This was back in 19. Why on earth, you know, would you say that these house, um, these suburbs will grow? But I was seeing it in the data and I didn't know about this chart specifically, but now that gives me context about what was going on. The property market didn't just start to boom post-COVID, right? Everyone knows, that those who know, that it actually started back at the end of 2019. Yes, yes. COVID just punctuated it. Um, that boom would have happened. If COVID didn't happen, then 2020 would have been a dark, like, uh, in aggregate, I think it would have been the 2021 year would have happened in 2020. So 2020 was just a bit of a pause, um, a bit of fear that happened and then uh, fell and then rose again. And on aggregate didn't really change all that much, but it was just punctuating uh, a macro boom that came from lower interest rates and higher borrowing capacities. That, that, well, that, at least that's my theory. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Now, well, well said. Okay, so there's a clear relationship, at least in Sydney, according to this chart, um, by and large between borrowing capacity and house prices. What's yeah. next? Yeah, this part's a bit scary. Um, so I did this analysis <laughs> in June or July, um, where we had no understanding or set understanding as to where the cash rate will land. Um, so this is panning out beyond 2021 and looking at where is where are borrowing capacities going to be now and in 2023. Um, so fast forward about six months, we're already here. Um, so this modeling shows about a 25% change in borrowing capacities that has occurred because um, we, we have a 3% cash rate at the moment, um, a little bit above that, but you know we're at that cash rate at the moment. So this chart has a few different scenarios. We've blown past all of them and we're already at this 25% borrowing capacity for, um, you know, I look like a bit of an idiot running models for 1.5% <laughs> cash rate. Like, you know, why would I do that? But uh, it's just how quickly interest rates have risen, um, you know, in six months, this chart, uh, you know, I can, I need to restart it from the 25% fall. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the price you pay for putting content out there. I remember just even, yeah, like back in February before the war broke out in Europe, you know, saying that, oh, look, it's very unlikely <laughs> that interest rates will be even at 2%, let alone 3%. So I can eat my words now. But yeah, I, I can see. So what, what you're saying is that as of now, I mean, right now in December, the official cash rate is 3.1%. We're basically back in terms of borrowing capacity levels to, you know, around the 2018 period, end of 18. Is that right? Yeah, ballpark. Yep. That's yeah. a fair summary. Um, this includes income growth. So this is for a particular person. Uh, just, just for context, this scenario is a couple earning at the time in 2017 about $150,000, $160,000 each. Um, so it's definitely a high income couple. Um, and yes, if they run their calculations every year, this this is just charting that out. Um, and now it's between 2018 and 2019. Yeah. Right. And the other thing that might be apparent to everyone else, but just struck me, is that even though interest rates have like gone up so much since 2018, because that household couple that you're talking about, the example, their own incomes have steadily gone up and you know, inflationary pressures, everything like that, that borrowing capacity is still higher than what it was in 2018. So that that's really interesting. Despite interest rates going up, 
borrowing capacity, although marginally, it is still higher than 2018. Yep, yep. So that's income rises flowing through. So one thing that I find that a lot of property investors don't fully appreciate is that the borrowing power uh, dynamics is kind of tilted upwards. Um, so it's not flat. So year-on-year borrowing capacities are not designed to be flat. They're actually designed to have credit growth in the system. So if we have, you know, a, a low credit growth is like a 5 6% amount. Um, so if we have credit growth in the system, part of that is built from providing higher borrowing amounts to borrowers over time. Um, and that's just a function of a multiple of income. So uh, net income after all expenses for a household, that gets multiplied by roughly 12 to work out how much you can borrow. So, you know, if you got uh, $1,000 after all your expenses in the year, you can borrow roughly $12,000. The bank will give you $12,000. So that's a multiple factor. Um, and what that kind of does is it like tilts your borrowing power upwards over time. Right. Is one way to interpret that, Redon, that, you know, notwithstanding interest rates, park them to the side for a second. In a high inflationary environment, you know, wages also um, do go north, they do rise. And if inflation is consistently high, wages are high, that puts actually an upward pressure on borrowing capacity. And therefore, once again, notwithstanding interest rates, that actually puts upward pressure on house prices as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a fair summary. Um, those inflation rates hit the expense side, but people only spend, you know, 50, 60% uh, of their total income on discretionary living items. Um, so it makes up a portion of the, that lending calculator. And the higher your incomes are, um, banks don't scale up your expenditures to the same degree. So, um, yeah, that's that's part of the story. So, um, yeah, inflation hits income levels at a higher multiple than it does the expense level. Um, so yeah, that leads to that tilted um, borrowing power chart over time. And you can kind of see that here a little bit. Um, if I panned it out over a 10-year analysis or a 20-year analysis, you'd, you'd see an upward trajectory, which makes a lot of sense. 10, 20 years ago, people weren't borrowing what's on this chart, $2.5 million. Yeah. And there was this um, chart that I saw the other day that I was looking at. I was looking at the raw data for it. That over the last 30, 40 years, house prices in Australia have gone up, like they've quadrupled. They've gone up four times or 4x. But if you normalize that in real terms, you strip out inflation, they've only just doubled. So once again, that kind of marries to the fact that in an inflationary environment, and we've had inflation in the last 40 years, it's not like we've been just stable in real terms house prices or the asset of property is one to at least have some exposure to because it's a natural inflation hedge over the long-term period. Yep, definitely. It's one of the golden rules of property investing and why you do it. Inflation is a really, really cornerstone reason. Um, and yeah, you've just outlined why over, over the long term. Yeah, cool. All right. What's next? Uh, so this one's getting a little bit technical, but um, what I did was I am also am predicting um, that APRA will reduce the buffer rate from 3% out. Um, I don't know exactly where it will land, but I, I've assumed a 2% buffer rate and just seeing what happens to borrowing capacities if there is a 2% buffer rate. Um, the, the current 3% hurdle rate is, in my opinion, no longer fit for purpose. Um, it makes sense when interest rates are low um, and credit growth is high, but it doesn't make sense when interest rates are much higher, approaching their peak, approaching their terminal level. And um, yeah, like there's no reason that there should be uh, banks should be assessing borrowers at eight nine percent um, once we get a, a sort of understanding that interest rates have peaked. Um, so that's why I've got this two percent buffer rate, and it increases borrowing. It just shifts the entire curve up a bit um, by roughly eight nine percent. 
Yeah, sure. So it doesn't actually require interest rates to fall for borrowing uh, capacity or borrowing power to be increased or enhanced because we're not at emergency settings in the official cash rate anymore. The, <laughs> we've already gone up by a lot, like 3%. And so yeah, APRA, the regulatory body, they don't need to set such, you know, like Nazi type of buffers, to be honest. Yeah, and yeah. just a question to you, I don't know if you know, I, I certainly don't, um, you might because you're a mortgage broker, but like internationally, perhaps in New Zealand or Canada or the UK, maybe like similar countries to Australia, did they also increase their buffers? Of course, we have probably the most um, solid banking systems compared to the world, but did they internationally, did other countries also increase their buffers and have they yeah. started to reduce their buffers now that interest rates have gone up or has that happened in, in history? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, definitely. So um, other countries, these are called macroprudential tools. Um, so it's part of the policy toolkit that regulators have to you know, dial up, dial down the economy. It's not just interest rates. Um, macroprudential tools have been quite commonly used in other countries. It's an international experience. Australia's had a sort of light touch approach to this. We kind of don't like to, inter like compared to the global experience, we don't like to intervene in these uh, structural calculators all that much and dial up and dial down lending. Um, but we have been doing this since 2015. Um, so New Zealand have uh, much uh, stricter approach to this. So they dial up and dial down. Um, and it's not just borrowing capacities that they target. It's That's much more of an Australia uh, thing that we've been looking at. Um, it's targeting the risk. Um, people will borrow too much money. So that's why they targeted borrowing capacities. In New Zealand, for example, um, they the, their mortgage books were too, um, they, the people weren't providing as large of a deposit. So they targeted deposit sizes and they made sure that people would provide large deposit sizes um, there. So you can target different types of lending risk. Um, in Australia, when you're targeting serviceability or debt to income ratios, the way to sort of apply that would be changing buffer rates in Australia. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, New Zealand's done a whole bunch of stuff to their tax regime, to the LVRs that people or investors specifically can use to extract equity. So the uh, I could be wrong here, but I think the New Zealand property market's down almost 20%. But correct me if I'm wrong here, Readham, I don't think it's a apples and apples comparison with Australia for those reasons that I just said, as well as the fact that our economy, I would say, has much more of a backbone than, you know, respectfully with our with our neighbours. I mean, I lived in New Zealand, so I can say this, but, you know, like the dairy industry, the forestry industry, it doesn't quite you know, stack up versus the Pilbara, you know, or iron ore resources, yeah. etc. So, you know, for those of you who might be thinking, oh, New Zealand's crashing, I, I know what's Australia's next. It's not quite like that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I find international commentators that talk about the Australian housing market without the Australian understanding um, of how our financial system works, they're always way off. So these are the guys that come in, um, go on Sunrise and talk about 40% price drops and then just do some high-level modeling and be like, wow, Australia's overpriced. Um, that may be true if you take some sort of international affordability comparisons, but they're not um, repurposing to Australia's unique financial system and the features of our financial system, which really drive the underlying valuation of property assets. So um, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's like it's like coming in from the US and saying, based on a price earnings multiple, the ASX 300 is overweight without understanding that the tax regimes are completely different. We have negative gearing on stocks here and they don't in the US or, you know, in other places in the world. So you've you got to be careful with those international comparisons. That makes sense, uh, Redem. What's what's the next chart telling okay, us? Okay, finally have some good news. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, this is what we look at for 2024. So um, panning out 
beyond the next year and looking at the recovery. So it's a little bit too early to talk about this. So this was a very much an early in the piece um, uh, analysis about what will the housing market recovery look like. Um, the most interesting thing about this chart is if you look at the borrowing power level at 20 in the year 2022-2023, you know, it's fallen dramatically in this chart. Um, so what does it look like in 2024? Um, the key thing to note here is if you have a 1.5% cash rate, yes, we're miles away from that. That requires what six rate cuts now, um, maybe seven, eight, nine by the time we hit our terminal rate. Borrowing powers will be will increase by roughly 33% and be higher than their 2021 peak. So even though the cash rate was only zero then. Um, so come, it's only been three years and the cash rate's 1.5%, but borrowing powers are a fair bit higher than their 2021 level. Um, and even at a 2.5% cash rate, you have a borrowing power level that's pretty close to that 2021 level, a little bit below it, but pretty close to that level. Um, there's a few reasons why in, in this analysis. is um, One, the assumption that APRA reduces their buffer rate down to 2%. Um, so that kind of takes away 100 basis points of the rate rises uh, automatically. Um, to the big one, and this one's particularly big for Sydney, um, and uh, we'll talk more and more about this in 2023, is the stage three tax cuts. Um, they are massive. Like, they're actually huge for net incomes. Um, so potential household net incomes are up by, you know, 10, 15, tw even close to $20,000, and that can be leveraged. Um, so that has a huge, huge impact on borrowing capacities. Um and the third one is is the one where I show multiple options is the cash rate itself. Um, so, you know, if the cash rate hits three and a half percent and those tax cuts go through, then the borrowing, basically, there's no change in the, in the cash rate and that borrowing powers will still increase by roughly nine, 10 percent. And that's just the stage three tax cuts. So, um, you know, overall, what this kind of shows is it may be doom and gloom now and borrowing capacities may be falling, but borrowing capacities ebb and flow. They go down, they go up, they change. Um, they change based on the assumptions you put in. And I've changed the assumptions here uh, for 2024, put, put in those tax cuts, which are legislated um, and, you know, just panned out where does it sit? And it presents quite a rosy picture for borrowing capacity. So um, yeah, that's what this what this chart shows. Sure. sure. That that's really interesting to me that even the worst case scenario, this red line, you know, where actually cash rates will continue to increase from this point onwards, i.e. December 2022, that still bears an upward trajectory in borrowing capacity because of those tax cuts and the natural inflationary um, pressures on, on wages, etc. And so therefore, if, at least in Sydney or Melbourne, if there's a relationship, maybe not a linear relationship, but if there's a relationship between borrowing capacity and house prices, then even if cash rates don't come down, we're likely to see a recovery in the market. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I think a lot of people, especially economists and commentators, they talk about like boom and bust. They talk about property market going bust. And then at the when it hits the bottom, it kind of bounces off like a tennis ball and yeah. booms the next year, 10%, 20%. I don't subscribe to that theory. And, and that's not how history has shown property markets to work either. Mm -hmm. But what this is saying is that while it's not going to become a booming environment in this worst case scenario, there's still more upside in that next year than downside. And that, that's really interesting because yeah, people, it's re it requires a lot of intelligence, freedom, requ requires a lot of context to like piece together 
the pieces of the puzzle and really see how everything will impact housing markets. You can take one piece and say, oh, look, Europe's going to go into recession or this war is never going to end in Europe or this and that. But you need to kind of form a, a hypothesis based on everything. And mm -hmm. I think whilst this these lines aren't everything, these certainly cover things that people don't always acknowledge. So that that's really cool. And this green line, if it does come down and, you know, who knows, it, it could come down less, it could come down more then that. That's a significant boom um, in the property market. Once again, um, my question to you, I guess, is from your training and from your experience as an economist, um, you know, at the treasury, what could be some ri further risks to the downside um, in this worst case scenario, and then on yeah. the flip side, what are the some upside risks to even this green scenario? So, could it get even greener, or could it get even more red? Yeah. So the big thing that I didn't have factored into this is rental growth. So, uh, asking rents in Sydney are up nearly twenty percent plus this year. Um, so that is a strong positive factor. Um, doesn't actually feed back into these charts so much directly because this is an owner-occupier chart, but it will feed back into the market. Um, and it's a big reason, um, dialing back to my first chart, it's a big reason why this correlation is not holding on the downside perfectly. We're finding that Sydney is stabilizing price-wise. Yes, you know, the current data still shows it's falling 1% month to month, but it's stabilizing on the ground. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, think more downside factors will need to happen to actually achieve this uh, this 25% fall in house prices, um, it's unlikely. And the reason why is because of rental growth. Um, it's been rampant in Sydney um, across many cities as well. Um, and uh, that's one positive factor. In terms of negative factors, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine anything much worse. Like, <laughs> like I, if you told me a year ago that interest rates will be 3% now, I would have projected all the dots out and being like, wow, that's going to really hit the economy. A lot of doom and gloom. We're in that worst case position um, when it comes to the factors that drive Sydney house prices. Um, so that's pretty nasty. Um, there is a fixed rate sort of uh, issue that may come to light. Um, I don't really prescribe to it that much because rates have risen so fast that all the variable rate borrowers have been smashed too so quickly um, that, you know, it's just 70% have been hit now and the last 30% get hit by the end of the year. Uh, most of the impacts will be hit from now. So I don't really see that much more in terms of negative news that could come through other than further increases in, in interest rates. I've only modeled out to 3% here. If you've modeled out to 4%, it gets very nasty. If you model out to 5%, uh, like, I don't want to think about that. That's, <laughs> that's just super scary. So, um, you know, it's a heightened risk situation that we're in currently. Um, and yeah, rental growth is helping uh, push these numbers into better situations than they were otherwise. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, like I don't I think we've ever been in this kind of perfect storm situation where you've got a lot of negatives, like you you mentioned, right? A lot of negatives going on in the economy. But at the same time, you've got so many positives for the housing market. For example, you know, 200,000 immigrants going to come and have already started coming in. But the total vacancies in the entire of the nation is just 50,000. So you've got a shortage of 150,000, assuming each immigrant lives by themselves, or even if there's two immigrants per house, that's still a shortage of 50,000 houses in Australia. So you've got like this kind of narrative where there's clearly a housing shortage, like everyone knows that. But then you've got interest rates rising, inflation is starting to come down, but it's still like a little bit annoying, I would say. It, I think that's what causes people to like really struggle to figure out what's going on. It, you know, some people are saying we're in for boom times next year. Some people are saying that there's going to be a further crash. I don't think we've been this polarized 
before and market conjecture. Like once again, um, from what you're seeing, from what the data is, see, uh, is stating, from your experience once again at the Treasury, um, how should people think about that? Of course, it's always a good time to buy in here. We're just talking aggregate. There's always markets within markets. Mm -hmm. But how can people, I suppose, marry up or um, you know, synthesize these kind of opposites that are occurring in the economy? Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's tricky. You're right. It, it it is very polarizing out there at the moment. Um, but uh, for Sydney specifically, prices are down nearly fifteen percent on the ground. They're, they're probably down fifteen percent already. So yeah. this chart, these charts, kind of show that that borrowing power change has already been there. There's a ten percent gap, but that's probably the rental growth replacements going up. Um, that's there. So going forward, the positive part is most of the pain has actually been felt. It's been fast forward and crunched into a short time period. Um, it's not a, a sort of cycle that, you know, pans out over a number of years and there's small deflation in prices year on year. It's just been a rapid price fall in a short time period. Um, and on the ground, it really felt like it in June, July, um, where there's been a 10% change, maybe even 15% change within a month or two. Um, shocked to markets. But the story here is if we are close to the terminal cash rate and cash rate and the cash rate does fall um, when inflation subsides, um, which, you know, CBA are predicting, um, then the flow on impacts, some of these charts and some of the things that we talked about is strong borrowing capacity recovery. And that may drive a strong recovery to house prices in Sydney. So yeah, yeah. Short summary. No, that's a, that's a really good summary. And I like that point that you made before around, you know, everyone's kind of fearful about this, you know, how there was that job keeper, um, job seeker cliff, whether those rebates finished up this cliff of where everyone rolls off from their fixed rates to the variable rates. But you made this point that, you know, we've already seen that because a lot of those people who are on variable rates, they've already had their mortgage repayments go like this. And yet mortgage arrears, whether it's reported by NAB or CBA or whoever, they're not really going in that same hockey stick direction. In fact, for some banks, they're still trending downwards. So people have the money and I feel that the variable rate um, symptoms or the people and how they've been able to continue paying off their loan on a variable rate, that's a leading indicator for what will happen to those on a fixed rate. Because if you know your interest rate payments are going to go up, you know, yep. in 12 months time by four or five X, you're saving up now, right? You're you're living off bank beans or, you know, that's a hyperbeliever. Kind of hope, yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, I think that was a, that was a really, really interesting mm. point. Um, I think last question maybe for, for yep. today right. is, um, we talked about Sydney, yep. um, and I think you're you're very active in the Sydney market and developing, mm -hmm. and you've yep. obviously made a lot of money there. Where do you think that the market has bottomed out outside of Sydney? So, like so for example, Perth, and there's there's markets within markets in Perth as well, mm -hmm. Brisbane. But where do you think the worst case scenario has already played out, or where do you think the worst case scenario will be the most timid in the you know nationally across different housing markets? Yeah, I, I think the answer to that would be Perth. Um, and I don't track this at all. You'd be better at this than me. Um, Darwin, uh, they just seem to correlate with each other. Perth and Darwin seem to move um, similarly to each other. Um, and it feels like if you look at charts of house prices of different cities, it feels more like the early 2000s periods where you had Sydney and Melbourne kind of deflating, staying still, not really moving very much, while you had the mining states, um, you know, doing quite well. So uh, and that's when Perth had shot up. And I think at one point, Perth house prices were above Sydney house prices um, for a short little period in time um, for a year or two. So, um, you know, if I was parking my money somewhere and I wanted the safest property asset, um, 
and what's going to be leading the recovery, I think Perth would see a much shallower fall. Um, but on the flip side as well, um, I know Sydney really well. And because it's fallen so much, uh, the, the risk factors are still there very much. Um, you know, we talked about variable rates, fixed rate cliffs, but, you know, we're not certain exactly where that will land. But Sydney has fallen so much that it offers uh, potential to buy the dip, so, so to speak, um, where most of the uh, downturn in prices may have already occurred. Um, and there's these positive factors that I kind of mentioned with the correlation between borrowing powers. Um, so personally, if I see those tax rates being confirmed in 2023 and have complete confidence that they'll go through, um, I think that, and we hit the terminal cash rate, um, I think that's like a go sign for Sydney that 2024 may be a good year, um, it just has a substantial impact on borrowing capacities. So I'd say Perth um, as an investor and Sydney uh, also is is probably a few months away from being there. Yeah, that that's super interesting. That that's that's just really really interesting to me. I I, I don't um, disagree um, at all yeah. with with what you're saying. I find it really interesting because the point that you made as well is that back in that turn of the the century, two thousand one, two thousand two onwards, the next ten years for Sydney were like really lackluster. They were like you know, almost like the last 10 years for Adelaide before the COVID boom. It was like almost nothing. And people thought Sydney property never rose. But it, juxtapose that with the fact that everyone knows Sydney property is expensive and this is like a really good time to buy. So it's so tempting to buy. But on the flip side, it's like how much upside potential is there in the next 10 years compared to Perth? It's, it's a really hard <laughs> hard thing to, to, get, to get our heads around. Yeah, I'm not a macro Sydney investor, so I don't buy Sydney as like an asset, if that makes sense. I wouldn't necessarily do that. Like micro Sydney offers so much opportunity. Um, macro Sydney, I'm not so sure. I think macro Perth, probably um, uh, a bit more of an exciting opportunity. Um, price point, lower risk, uh, you know, lower median price point there, high yields. There's so many reasons as to why um, it feels safer. I think you take away the downside risks there. Um, and interestingly, that period that you talked about, I think that corresponded with higher interest rates or rising interest rates then too, that early 2000s period. Um, and surprise, surprise, Sydney didn't do anything. Um, we're kind of in that same setting. Um, so, uh, you know, history is repeating itself in some um, and leaving clues this time around. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's if you look hard enough and you follow the data and you follow uh, the reasons why things happened, um, then you're left with clues. Um, and in my mortgage broking experience, my lending experience, Sydney, I find is, is quite a predictable market. Um, Macro-wise, mm. I don't think it's that hard to predict. Um, you won't need that much econometric skills um, uh, to go and do it. I think you could just follow lending and it should yeah. predict what happens. I think it's the most tied to the national uh, theme of the day or the national season of the yep. day. And I think maybe one way to summarize it was almost like if you're a little bit more um, if you have more weight in your purse and you're a little bit more sophisticated, Sydney has some fantastic opportunities. But if you're a beginner investor, you're looking for affordable property, less downside risk, then that's probably where you want to park your money in Perth. Because, you know, the first five years, 2000 to well, let's say 2001, 2002 to 2007, eight interest rates were actually rising and Sydney wasn't performing. But those resource led, um, you know, states and, and cities were, you know, interest rates were rising, but Perth was booming. So yeah, it was yeah. Brisbane. So it's, it's, you know, it all comes down to obviously city, then, then down to down to suburb uh, I, I just think i could talk about this all day and it's it's truly a I, it's an honor it's really fun actually to to talk with a 
Um, I would say you're a little bit more advanced economist than I am, but you're actually a proper economist. I'm just not studied a, it. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I got a job that I shouldn't have got. Someone hired <laughs> me and I'm like, okay, I'll work it out as I go. So um, yeah, it was a pleasure chatting with you, PK. Um, big fan of your work. Um, uh, I think we share a lot of mutual clients as well, um, incidentally as well. So, um, you know, big fan working with them. Um, many people have said good things. So uh, pleasure to be here and thank you for asking these questions. It's It's nice to share this research with others as well. Yeah, I find it intellectually really stimulating. So thank you so much, Readam. And, and your company, I think, is called Confidence Finance. So hopefully you guys, um, yeah, actually got some confidence by by the obviously the conversation, but but more so also the um, the, the charts. And there's more charts, there's more content and analysis that Readam puts out um, onto Property Chat, which is a forum that he's active on, and also LinkedIn. And you just started a podcast as well. What's that called? Australian property chat. Um, yeah, so we capture stories about what's going on with property markets. It's two economists, my best uh, friend and business partner, um, also ex-treasury. We met there first day. We just talk property, underlying demand dynamics and things like that. Um, yeah, Australian property chat, loving it. Yeah, awesome. No, good on you for starting it. And for those of you who are listening, you know, my audience is a um, little bit data savvy. They're into economic, econometrics, they're into economics, they're into finance. So I'm sure you guys will get a, a hopefully a ton of value from Readem's podcast. Go check that out. Um, once again, thanks for your time, mate. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, Peter. Take care, mate.